the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, church. I've got a few too many microphones here, so I'll hand at least one of them. That doesn't mean you can preach along with me, Carlos, but uh, just gives me a bit more space. Well, we, as Carlos has mentioned, we had a great celebration yesterday. A number of us were involved uh, celebrating with Fred and Anna getting married, and uh, that took place out at Waiora Scout Park. And uh, their motto, I think, is always be prepared. I'm not sure that's Fred and Anna's motto, but, um, but it was a great celebration. We only had uh, one downpour during the outdoor service, and that was during the outdoor service, but it, it kind of added to the significance of the day. Uh, I said at a wedding earlier in the year uh, that when two young Christians come together, and uh, they commit themselves to each other in the presence of God. Uh, I said it's a sample of the kingdom of Christ, and I believe that to be true. Yesterday, was, uh, that was absolutely true. It wasn't just two Christians, two individual Christians coming together, but both parents, both sides of the parents testified to God. And there was a real celebration of God's hand on these two families coming together, not just two individuals coming together. The first reading that Emma brought to us this morning draws the uh, analogy of the relationship that Yahweh has with Israel, and he paints it in the language of a marriage. He speaks about his beloved and his devoted bride. So if you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me to Jeremiah Uh, As Emma said, it's on page 752, right in the middle of your Bibles. You'll find Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, and I'm reading from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. As a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. God remembers Israel's devotion, and he describes them as a bride, a bride who was devoted to him. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, Like Fred and Anna, there was little that they wouldn't do for each other because of their love. They would follow God into the wilderness, and that can happen. It can happen in marriages after the flush of the honeymoon is over and on day two you wake up and you realize that your husband is a snorer. And then on on week one you realize that your husband can't cook to save himself. Now this isn't autobiographical, I'm just making that point here. I'm just speaking in general terms here, Mary, all right? But even more significantly, after the flush of honeymoon, you can actually walk into the wilderness zone. That can be the reality. I remember well the first four years of Mary and my relationship, we were struggling through the journey of postnatal depression, and it was a real struggle. It was a wilderness. To say it was, was dry and it was barren is an understatement. That can be the reality. That was the reality for Israel. They were literally taken into the wilderness, but Yahweh remembered their devotion. He remembered their devotion. He also describes them as being holy, separated, set apart. He also describes Israel as being the first fruits, the first fruits of Yahweh. 
But once they crossed into the promised land, he goes on to say, once they were given custody of the land, Yahweh is absolutely concerned about what took place then. Look at verse 7. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and its rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and you made my inheritance detestable. And then look at the specific groups of people that Yahweh holds accountable for this defilement in verse 8. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law don't know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. The priests, the lawyers, the leaders, the prophets, they had all drifted away from that first devotion that they had and held so dear. And Yahweh says, I'm bringing charges against you. What are the charges that God brings? Well, they're actually the charges that God brings to churches down through the ages. They're the charges that apply to many leaders who wander off from their devotion. They are charges that you and I do well to ponder on deeply on a regular basis. The charges are listed in verse 13 of chapter 2 in Jeremiah. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. These are the charges that Yahweh brings against, against Israel. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and then in their thirst, in their desperation, what do they do? They go and craft their own cisterns. They make their own cistern to find the water that they need, only to find that these cisterns are cracked and can hold no water. These are the two charges that Yahweh brings to Israel. These are the charges that all people of God down through the ages need to listen to and take desperately seriously. They've forsaken Yahweh, and then in their desperation, in their thirst, they try to create their own cisterns to hold the living water that they are created to make. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Jesus' words, you'll be prompted to recall the interchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman recorded in John 4. Remember, in John 4, we won't go there, but I'll just quickly describe the echo that Jesus picks up from this passage. He engages with a Samaritan woman, and he's at Jacob's well, which is significant in itself. And he says to the Samaritan woman, uh, draw me some water. And she's quite shocked. She, a despised Samaritan woman that a Jew would ask water for from her, and she's quite, quite perplexed by that. And Jesus responds to her and says, If you knew the gift of God's, and who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now Jesus is picking up on the echo of Jeremiah 2, verse 13 here, when he says this interchange. And then he goes on to say, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, meaning the water from the physical well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. This is what Jesus is offering to this despised Samaritan water, a spring that will bring eternal life. 
Remember the charges that Yahweh had against Israel. You've forsaken me, the well of living water, and now you've gone and tried to create your own well, your own cisterns. It's never going to work. You're never going to hold water. Those cisterns that you've created are cracked, and the water's just seeping out. This is the journey for the people of God. We need to hear these charges. In the context of Jeremiah 2, for Israel... The passage goes on to say, in the political realm, the forsaking of God meant what they did in terms of security. They looked to Egypt. They looked to Assyria. Surely these powerful nations are going to protect us. That was part of the forsaking of God in the political realm. What does it look like for us and for the church today when we forsake God? Well, In the political realm, it can easily mean that we abdicate our God-given responsibility of loving our neighbor. We can look to our government to solve all our society's issues. When God would say, hey, look, actually, it's not Parliament's responsibility to love your neighbor. Guess what? It's mine. It's your responsibility. What does it mean for us in the personal realm when we forsake Yahweh? Well, it can mean many, many different things. But forsaking God begins ever so subtly. We start to read Scripture as the judge and put ourselves over Scripture. We come to the Word of God and we say, what does this mean? And we put ourselves over Scripture and we become the judge as opposed to saying, Lord, speak to me. What are you saying to me? Instead of sitting under God's Word, we stand over it as judge. What does it mean to forsake God and to create our own wells. Well, we can easily start to isolate ourselves from the people of God. We can easily become sporadic in our gathering together to give thanks, to encourage one another. We can easily begin to put our trust in our own abilities to get things done. And then we can secretly start to dig our own wells, whether it's on the internet, forming relationships that have no basis in truth or love. Whether it's in the consumption of our food, whether it's in the consumption of alcohol and drugs and online material, we begin to dabble in the occult, first through ignorance and then through compulsion. And God would say, why did they not ask, where is the Lord?" That was the charge that he put to the Israelite leaders. Why did they not ask, where is the Lord? Some of you this morning need to ask that first and most basic question, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? I want to turn to the New Testament passage. If you'll turn with me now to Acts chapter 3 which is on page 1093, I think. Acts chapter 3. And here we find the early church very, very soon after the day of Pentecost. And the Word of God is expanding, and many people have come into the kingdom of God. And Peter and John are the key leaders, and they're traveling to the temple on a daily basis to give thanks, to pray. Luke records it's 3 o'clock that afternoon. They've traveled up to the temple to pray. And as they are about to go into the gate beautiful, there's a beggar, a lame beggar who's sitting. He's been placed at that gate, and he cries out to them, and he asks for money. He's been lame since birth, Luke records for us. 
And Peter and John look him in the eyes, and Peter says, look at us. He wants his attention. Peter says, look at us. He's asked for money from these two great apostles, and Peter says, look at us. And then he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then began an almighty commotion, because what happened at that point? Well, Peter takes him by the right hand. He stands to his feet, this lame beggar who's never walked in his life. His instantly, his ankles and his legs become strong. Luke records for us. And he begins to walk. He went into the temple courts, walking, jumping, and praising God. And people saw, were amazed, and filled with wonder. The people were astonished and came running to see him. And then Peter deflects the attention because they want to ascribe this healing to Peter and says, Peter says, it's nothing to do with John and I. It has nothing to do with our power. It has nothing to do with our godliness. Picking up in verse 13 of chapter 3 in the book of Acts. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed... And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name. And the faith that comes, comes through him that has completely healed him as you can see. Now, Peter continues speaking to his fellow Israelites. He's been speaking pretty harshly, hasn't he? You killed the author of life. He begins to soften his language a little bit. Uh, and he moves from you killed the author of life to you acted in ignorance. But the guilt remains hanging over these people like a thundercloud. Peter's still pretty clear whether through ignorance or not they killed Jesus. Verse 17, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. Times of refreshing must come. Times of refreshing must come. That's what Peter says. Times of refreshing must come. That's what the word of God says to this morning. Now, Hope Church is about 10 months old, and we've had a great year. We've had an amazing year in terms of what God has been doing. We reflected on Thursday night at Parish Council that, that we believe at least nine people have made confessions of faith in Christ through our mission this year. So we praise God for that. We praise God for what God is doing in Hope Church. But it's been a hard year. There's been a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work has gone into getting us to where we are now. God's word to us this morning would say, times of refreshing must come. Times of refreshing must come. 
How many of you this morning here, like me, are pretty open to a time of refreshing? How many of you would like to see a time of refreshing in your life? Amen. That's what God's Word is saying to us now. Times of refreshing. And remember the language that we heard about Jesus at the well when he says, if you come to me, you're going to know the streams of living water. That's where the times of refreshing come. This is the promise of God's word. Times of refreshing are going to come your way. But how does that happen? How do we receive that refreshing? How do we receive that refreshment? Well, have a look at the text. Turn back with me to verse 18, Acts 3. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer, repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So it seems to me that the Word of God is saying to us that if we want to know the times of refreshing, that preceding that time of refreshing, repentance comes. Ah, bother, you say. Times of refreshing are preceded by repentance. What does it mean to repent before the Lord's? C.S. Lewis defines repentance this way. Repentance means unlearning all the self-conceit the self-will that we have been training ourselves in, it means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. And you say, Stu, that doesn't sound terribly refreshing to me. Too many people equate repentance with an emotional response. Now, repentance can indeed often does have an emotional response, but that's not the core meaning of what the text is saying here. It actually means a reversal of the two sins that Jeremiah speaks of in chapter 2 in his book. Letting go of the broken cistern that you have fashioned for yourself. That's the unlearning that C.S. Lewis talks about. Letting go of the broken cisterns that you've been creating, those safety nets that you've been putting around your life, whatever they might look like. It means letting go of those things, unlearning those things, and coming back to the source of living water, coming back to God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in the 80s, for all you Gen Xs out there and beyond, you might remember a song that was written by a woman, oh, actually I don't think it was written by her, but it was sung by Bonnie Tyler called A Total Eclipse of the Hearts. Anybody remember that song? Any Gen Xs out there? Total Eclipse of the Heart is one of the best definitions of repentance that I know from a secular writer. In that song, she taught, and I won't, I won't sing it to you. I'll try not to sing it to you. I might break out at some point. Turn around. Every now and then, I get a little bit lonely, a little bit tired, a little bit fe fearful falling apart and then the refrain comes turn arounds every now and then she's angry she's terrified her life is falling apart she needs him tonight and the refrain comes turn around she's in the dark but she actually believes that forever can begin tonight 
She speaks about once upon a time falling in love in the same way that God said in Jeremiah 2, once upon a time I remember you falling in love, but now I'm only falling apart. Once there was light in her life, but now it's all darkness. There's nothing that she can say, there's nothing that she can do, and the refrain comes, turn around, turn around. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that this Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Restore everything. That's the promise of God. Not only for us to experience refreshing, times of refreshing, but to restore everything. Guess what? That means restoration in my life. That means restoration in your life. God is going to restore everything. Times of refreshing, times of restoration, they are yours in Jesus' name as you turn back to him in repentance and faith. I don't care if you're 90 or 19, if your life has been built on your own competency, on your own ability, on your own resources, let me tell you that cistern will not hold living water. If you're relying on your own strength, if you're relying on your own competencies, if you're relying on your own abilities, this cistern is cracked and it cannot hold living water. Turn around, God would say. Turn around and experience the times of refreshing. Experience the time of restoration that is held out to all who come back to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it takes great humility or it takes desperation or it just takes simple, clear thinking to realize this is God's gift to us this morning, to know his refreshing, to know his restoration of all good things in your life. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Repent, believe, and walk in the times of refreshing. You know, we live in interesting times. We live in an age where we are seeing bushfires in Australia, where we are seeing floods in New Zealand, where we are seeing volcanoes erupting in New Zealand. We are seeing political rewriting of political books and agendas, but these times must come. How much warning do we need before we turn around? The scripture foretold these days, you will hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. This Jesus, this Jesus who we forsake, who we disown, was crucified, but God raised him from the dead. 
so that all things can be restored to shalom. That's peace, that's refreshment, and that's rest. And God would say to us this morning, turn around, turn around. The self-sufficiency cannot hold the living water. The cracked systems that you have created, that we have created, we so easily create, cannot hold the living water. Turn around, God would say to us. The vessel that God has been given to us, the only vessel that God has given to us to receive the living water, is our own spirit as we open ourselves to God's spirit in Christ. That has no cracks. It is that which we create that leaks the living water. So this morning, God's word to us, God's promise to us, that as we turn back to him, the source of living water in Christ, times of refreshing will come. Not only refreshing, times of restoration, restoration of your heart, of your mind, of your soul. That's his promise to us this morning. Church, let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer as we turn back to God. Father, we want to again this morning say thank you for your word as we sit under your word, as we allow your word to minister its grace and its truth to us. Father, we thank you for reminding us this morning that as we come to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his promise is that streams of living water, streams of life that are nothing but your Holy Spirit filling us with true life, with eternal life, that is the promise of restoration. That is the promise of refreshment that you hold out to us this morning. And so we turn back to you in repentance and in faith. Father, grant us the courage. Grant us the faith. Grant us the love that we might open our spirits to receive your spirit afresh, that you might fill us with these streams of living water, that we might know that refreshment that you hold out to us in Christ Jesus. And so in faith, we open our hearts, our minds, our very spirits to the work of your Holy Spirit. Minister your streams of living water to your church this morning. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.